You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. How are you guys? Seems like a long time since I've been here. Hmm. Who asked you, Jim? Jim's always got to respond. He was there last night. Hey, let me first say congratulations to Pastors Nate and Rach and our, our awesome creative team. Uh, particularly the ones, the, the artists and uh, the ones doing the event management. Uh, listen, it is excellent. And if you haven't been yet, you really should get there tonight. And the people that walk in and see it and the message that's there from the moment you walk in the door. You know, take somebody with you tonight. From, uh, you know, it's on from 7 to 9. Uh, it just kind of portrays everything that this weekend is about in a creative form that shows our God is creative. Even the cross was one of the most creative, brilliant strokes of history that God could have ever done, and people miss that. So, look, get there tonight. It's awesome. It'll be incredible. And I also want to commend the preachers over the past few weeks who brought outstanding messages on the revolutionaries. On Tuesday night at uh, Leadership, somebody said to me, man, I am really enjoying uh, this series on revolutionaries, which is cool. Really think that's great. want to commend uh, the preachers. I should say the young ones, um, but it'll make me look old, so I'm not going to say that. But often, often, um, you know, revolutionaries are seen in a negative light. A- and it's cast, you know, this, this aspersion over the idea of a revolutionary because a revolutionary is seen as a rebel. Now, you need to understand where I come from. Being a rebel is a proud thing. We got a saying, and I'll say it in Southern for you. I'm a rebel born and a rebel bred, and when I die, I'll be a rebel dead. I mean, we were proud to be rebels. But a lot of people think it's a bad thing. Somebody who resists the authorities, they buck the system. Um, But in a positive sense, a revolutionary understands radical change has to take place. The status quo isn't good enough. And they're willing, often these revolutionaries are willing to pay a high price for this. Sometimes even their lives. They're people who revolt against a system that's wrong and the norms of society. People like Mahatma Gandhi, who, who led a peaceful revolution in India that still impacts people around the world to this day. And people like Martin Luther King Jr. It was in my home state that that whole thing uh, unfolded where he led this movement against injustice uh, against uh, the blacks in America. And the pages of history are filled with those who, by their revolutionary acts, have made a mark on the world, and the world's never been the same since then. But the pages of Scripture are also filled with men and women who altered the course of history by doing the unexpected, the unpopular, the uncomfortable, sometimes paid highly with it also. People like Deborah, people like Esther. It's very easy to read over that and skim over it very quickly and not realize the price that they paid to do this. Daniel, Hosea, Cornelius, I mean the list could go on and on. But today, today leads us to focus on the greatest revolutionary of all time. The one whose attitude and actions not only created a revolution, but created a movement that would carry on that revolution. And that's what's often missed. I mean, obviously we're talking about Jesus Christ, but what's not so obvious to so many people is how he did it. That's what people miss it. His greatest method, if you like, is so unconventional and so unexpected that everybody who followed him missed it. Just don't understand this. It's gone. What was that all about? They didn't get it. 
It was just kind of out there. It was, it was instead of firing a shot, raising a sword, and, and, and putting up a banner of war, he went to a place that was the most despised, most tortured, most horrific. You know, often when you see pictures of Golgotha, you know what you see? You see a nice hill. You see a few people standing around crying and a few people hurling abuse at him. Uh, what you don't see is behind Golgotha is a garbage dump with dead, rotting bodies. That's what you don't see. And thousands of people died this way, and they thought Jesus is just another one of these thousands of people who die insignificantly, throw his body on the garbage heap. Instead, Joseph says, no, you give me his body. It was so unconventional that they missed it. And yet, it's at the cross where it all began. Uh, I told you I read a book, just to get me ready for this, N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began. And he said this, the cross was the moment when something happened as a result of which the world became a different place, inaugurating God's future plan. The revolution began then and there. How many songs have you sung today talking about the revolution? How many times when you think of the cross do you think about a revolution? We think about sacrifice, we think about sins being forgiven, but we don't think about a revolution that's going to impact the planet. And yet... The cross brought life and freedom because of revolutionary grace. The most unexpected way. Instead of trying to kill death with killing people, he surrendered to death himself on that cross and kicked off the most incredulous revolution you could imagine. Paul captures this in Colossians 3. Colossians 2. There's these twin letters where he talks about things like this. And in Colossians 2, he says this. Verse 13, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away then or but God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. So in other words, you were toast. You were condemned. You were lost. You were gone. You were hopeless. But God, God moved. And God moved and he forgave us all of our sins, but he didn't just forgive us. The cross isn't just limited to forgiveness. He didn't just forgive us, he made us alive. How did he do that? Well, we'll see. Verse 14 says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. There is this document, this legal document of judgment against every human being on the planet that declares death and judgment and condemnation. And Jesus took that and he paid for it at the cross. Verse 15 says, though, he didn't just pay for it. When he did this, in this way, he did something totally, totally unexpected. I'm not even sure the angels in heaven knew what was about to happen. And all of a sudden, it says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You know, when Paul's talking about this, you can picture the Roman generals or even Caesar himself going out to win a battle. They decimate nations. They humble them in the most, uh, most humiliating ways. But one of the things they do, along with the leader of nations and people, they put them in chains behind them and drag them back to Rome. And then they make them submit in front of the whole population to Caesar right then there. Make a public disgrace of them. The ones who used to hold power and authority over people are nothing now but slaves and conquered wimps. And so Paul says, 
This is what Jesus did at the cross. He didn't just die. Jesus won the victory. This is why it's so unexpected and so unknown. Now, I don't know why. I, I don't know why I did this. I should have known better. But for years, I kind of had the idea. Maybe you did. I had the idea that Friday and Saturday, the devil and hell and all the demons just had a party. We got him. He's finished. He's done. Woo! Hell is having an orgy, you know, kind of thing, because we killed the Son of God. And I kind of thought, finished. And then I thought, when Sunday came around, resurrection, they went, oh. And I thought, resurrection brought victory. And I guess I had so focused on the necessity of Jesus' death for our sins and his sacrifice that I missed something very vital here. In the scripture, Paul makes it clear that it was a cross where Jesus fired a fatal shot into the kingdom of hell and defeated Satan. And this is why it's so unconventional. By dying, he defeated death. Not by amassing a nuclear armament did he go against them. He surrendered and submitted himself to the greatest weapon the enemy had and defeated him. And I missed something there. And Paul makes it clear that this is where he disarmed Satan and he took out of his hand that legal judgment document that was against every one of us and said, that's mine, thank you. I paid for that. You no longer hold that over any human being on the planet. Finished. It's finished. And he made a laughingstock of the enemy right there on Friday. I'm like, why, why did I miss this? I, mean, I, I don't understand this. Jesus' revolutionary act of submitting to death was payment for our sin and more. It isn't just about you and me getting forgiven and going to heaven. It was a moment of complete triumph over the greatest weapon that the enemy had. Complete triumph. You need to understand, the Bible declares that the greatest weapon against us is death. Now, that's not just one day your body's going to die. That's everything about us is on this cycle downward towards death. And it affects our marriages. It affects our health. It affects our finances. It affects our relationships. It affects everything. Everything has the stench of death on it. And it's deteriorating slowly. Jesus paid for that. He took the best that the enemy had and he paid for it in his body. Because the ability to win over everything the enemy brings against us was secured at the cross. Everything. And no matter what you're facing today that's trying to take you down or out, the sting of that has been taken. It's been paid for. You don't have to go get it somewhere. You just need to receive it because it's yours already. The cross secured freedom. It wasn't just a moment where Jesus died and paid for sins. The revolution wasn't just for our personal salvation. Don't miss this. I know that because of the way we've been raised and the way we get educated and the way we, we get formed in life, we read everything in the Bible about how does it affect little old me. I'm not worried about you. How does it affect me? That is not the tone of what Paul's talking about. Paul says, yes, it does affect you, but even more than you. It affects a lot more than that because the day the revolution began wasn't just for my salvation and your salvation. It was for freedom on the planet. Period. 
And that's why we've got faith today. It's not just, oh yeah, we're having a memorial and we're talking about this dead guy and how he might affect our lives because of the sacrifice he made. No, we're talking about something that defeated the best weapon the enemy could throw against humanity. And we have the power now for victory because of that. It's secured freedom. So let me propose something to you. Just follow my thread of thinking for a minute. Okay. Jesus made it clear the reason he came to the planet, the reason he was born, the reason he did everything he did was for the cause of the kingdom. Right? Oh, you're not sure. You think it's just to forgive sins. All right. All right. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus has been preaching and healing and delivering people around the city uh, of Capernaum. I mean, everybody brought to him got a miracle. They thought, this is awesome. Let's start the Jesus first ministry in Capernaum. Everybody will come. We'll have revival. Isn't that an amazing thing that people's idea of revival is we'll build it and they'll come? Whereas Jesus said, no, revival is I did it, you go. It is. It's, that's why. I mean, he's going, what, what, what? Did I say bring everybody? Anyway, listen, Jesus, stay here and we'll bring everybody to you and you'll heal everybody who comes. And he went, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Now, it's a good thing. Healing's a good thing. I mean, he's on the road to success. Why not build on your success? And Jesus in verse 43 says this I can't do this because I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For this cause I came. For what cause? Healing everybody? No. Healing was just a sign that something greater was around. I came for the cause of getting the kingdom of God to every city and to every person on the planet. And this is at the beginning of his ministry. Now, down to the end of his ministry, John 18 verse 37, he is facing Pilate. And Pilate says, you know, I have the power of life and death over you. I imagine Jesus at that moment, a little kind of smirk went across his face, like, yeah, right. <laughs> and he says, so you say you're a king, huh? And Pilate's not saying this because he wants to believe him. He's saying this because he, he's just big-noting himself above him. And Jesus said to Pilate, you say rightly that I'm a king. I am. It's for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. So here, here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus came for the cause of the kingdom of God. Got it? That's the first thing in the thread of thinking. The kingdom of God was given to humanity in the Garden of Eden when God said to Adam and Eve, here is my kingdom, have dominion over it and rule over it. They lost it. They forfeited it. Adam and Eve on that fateful day turned from God and it wasn't just their relationship with God that was affected. All of creation was affected. Everything was affected. Everything was lost. The kingdom of heaven that was handed to humanity was now lost. So Jesus becomes a man to get it back. The Son of God becomes a man to get it back. Why do you think he's called the second Adam? Because it takes a man to get it back. Humanity to restore this, to redeem this. But only God as a man could do this. And so here's the thread of thinking. Jesus said, I came to get what was lost, the kingdom of God. All right, track with me. Adam and Eve lose it. Humanity doesn't have it. Jesus comes and says, I came to get this back. And so as he's now trekking into Jerusalem, the week before the crucifixion, he stops at Zacchaeus' house and he eats, right? Remember the story? And so he's eating at Zacchaeus' house. Right at the end of the whole dialogue, he says this amazing thing, just very short sentence. 
For the Son of Man. Got it? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, my head immediately goes to, well, that's talking about me. It's talking about you. It's talking about individuals getting saved. Perhaps. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just personal salvation. Because what was lost? Everything that God trusted Adam and Eve with was lost. Jesus said, I came to get it back. I came to get the kingdom and dominion authority on the planet back. I came to seek and to save not only people, but the kingdom of God to be trusted to people. He was on a mission. He was on a mission to bring the kingdom to the earth. So the cross, listen, I don't know. We just so often have so individualized this that the cross is there to save a person from their sins. And it is. But it's more. It's also there to build and establish a revolutionary kingdom of kings and priests on the planet. That's what it, ha that's, that's what it started. All the way back in Deuteronomy. You know what happened? Back in Deuteronomy... God said all the way back there to his people, you're going to be a, a kingdom of priests for me. Right? Got it? Then you come all the way down to the New Testament. Peter echoes that. We are a royal priesthood, kings and priests. John closes the New Testament with Jesus saying that we are a kingdom of priests. Do you see this? This was his mission. His mission wasn't just to give us a ticket to heaven. His mission was to give us authority again to bring freedom in people's lives who are lost and bound because the kingdom of God is here. You know what Jesus said? You know, if, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know what that means? Kingdom of God is here. That's what he said. He said, this is evidence that the kingdom is here. So the deal is this, guys. We are walking, talking miracles. We were lost, but he found us. We were dead. He quickened us to life. And previously, our highest purpose was to serve self or something or somebody else. But now we have been entrusted with the cause of the kingdom here on the planet. It is bigger than us. It is an amazing thing. The cross inaugurated a revolution that makes you and me stewards of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We're a revolutionary people. I guess you don't often think like that when you think of the cross. You think of suffering, shame, sacrifice, even payment, atonement, substitution. But do you think of revolution? Do you think you've been called into a revolution? Wright goes on and he says this. The revolution of the cross sets us free to be the royal priesthood. And the only thing stopping us is our lack of vision. And our failure to realize that this was why the Messiah died in the first place. I mean, I, I don't want to deflate your personal bubble. But it is far bigger than you and me. It is far bigger than just me getting to heaven one day. It's me bringing heaven to earth today. And that's what it's about. Yes, of course he forgave our sins. But he died to raise up a people who would continue the advancement of his kingdom here on earth. Because we're a people who don't live under the kingdoms of this world. We don't look and sound like everybody else. We carry the kingdom of God and we advance it together with purpose and with power. We look for opportunities to work with God to connect heaven to earth. 
we gather others to be part of this revolutionary family. It's an awesome thing. And, and we're people who believe and release heaven here on earth. That's what it's all about. If we could get this vision, and if we could see that's what Jesus came and died for, then all of a sudden, our world would become a different place. Because it's no longer just, God, what can you do for me today, this Easter? It's, God, what do you want to do, not only in me, but through me this Easter? So you see, the cross secured it, made it possible. It was impossible before the cross. The cross made it possible. And when you think of the cross, think about this from now on. Don't just think about, oh yeah, little old me, got my sins forgiven, I've got a ticket to heaven, there's a home reserved for me in heaven. That's, that's, can I dare to say that's more sentimentalism than it is solid, solid belief in what Jesus came for? Because we like to think little old me is going to heaven. And it's a good thing. But I would rather think that the big old kingdom is here on the planet doing something spectacular. Listen, cross made it possible. But the events of the third day, what was that all about? He didn't just die to make it possible. He was raised from the dead to make it probable. Sunday signified this is the real deal. The weekend isn't just about sacrifice. The weekend is about life and resurrection loosed on this planet. The early Christians saw this. Let me read another one from Wright. He said this. But they, Jesus' first followers, quickly came to see that his resurrection not, uh, see his resurrection not simply as an astonishing new beginning in itself, but as the result of what happened three days earlier. The resurrection was the first visible sign that the revolution was already underway. I love this last bit. More signs would follow. That's even today. More signs would follow because the resurrection brought power and it brought authority in, in everything that God wanted us to do. So in the twin letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul is praying for the church. I pray you guys get it. You know, if he were talking today, it's, I pray that you really get it. it, it you, know, you know what an amazing thing? It, it is possible to be a child of God and still not get it. It's like kind of Lazarus, you can come out of the grave but still be wrapped in smelly grave clothes. Just don't get it. And so Paul says, I, I want to pray that you get this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You get it in here. In order that you may know, down to verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who to believe. He's now shifted to the power of the resurrection. That power is like the working. Now, in the original language, he uses four different Greek words to, to try to describe it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now that sounds like it's all up there stuff, but it's far more than that. I pray that you get it in here because if you get it in here, not only will you be different, the world around you gets changed. Because this power can be known. We are not talking about a theory or reading Shakespeare or reading something from Aristotle or Socrates. We are talking about a power that can be known and experienced. See, when Paul says that you know this, because all the way through the book of Ephesians, there's two things we miss. When he says you, he's not talking about me. He's talking about all of us. Where I come from, he'd say y'all. Pray y'all get this. 
But when he then talks about getting this and knowing this, he's not saying that you understand this, that you somehow in your head and in your intellect finally become smart. He's saying, I pray that you know this by life, by experience. So when he prays for them to know the love of God, he doesn't pray for them to somehow work their little magic philosophically around, oh, that's what it meant when he did that. And that's, no, that right here, right now, you experience how great the love of God is for you. And when he prays that they know hope, he's not saying that someday you know about this big pie and the sweet by and by that will make you happy in eternity. No, he's talking about you'll know and experience hope right here, right now. There is hope for today. And then when he talks about power, man, he's saying that you will experience power. So much so that even Christians, when faced with death, stop with a settledness and a smile and say, the sting is gone. The best the enemy can throw at me now is temporary. And it's gone. And it doesn't matter how much you threaten us. We multiply and keep multiplying no matter how much you try to snuff us out. Because of the power of his resurrection. It can be known and we know and have experienced that power. I mean, I want you to stop and think about it. I was doing some ministry with city churches in Canberra years ago. And we went downtown, right out in the middle of where a lot of the police come out and eat, and a lot of business people come out and eat at lunch, out in an open area. And uh, um, had a band playing, and then the leader would come up to one of us and he'd go, you're on next. And he said, you got to start with this line, and you can only speak for about two or three minutes. But here's the starting line, but you got to say something that has really happened to you. And here's how it starts. I have experienced the power of God in my life when? Now fill in the blank. And we stood in front of all these people having lunch. And we stood with reality and could stand there and say, I have known and experienced truly the power of God when He saved my marriage, when He healed my body, when He changed my life. And people are giving testimony after testimony when I was set free from abuse. And I mean, people are sitting there eating lunch and they're gobsmacked going, what's that about? This is different than just stale old religion. This is a power that can be known and experienced. But here's the deal. Don't wait for God to flick the switch. He's already done that. Because Paul says, the Father did that when he raised Jesus from the dead. Because he said, this power is for us who what? Believe. It has to be activated by us. Don't wait for God to do it. You're waiting for God to do something He's already done. Did you know that? You're waiting for God to loose a miracle where He's already loosed His power for a miracle. Hmm. The Father made it possible the same way. He said the same way He released a miracle when He raised Jesus from the dead. Right now, you can experience that same thing through belief. It, His power is for us who what? No, no, say it. For us who believe. Right. Belief, not, it's not just belief in a God. Listen to me, here's the key. It's not just belief in a God who can do miracles. It's trust in your God, my God, our God, who has already released the power for miracles when we trust Him. Pure and simple. Now, I know our rational minds go, yeah, but 
Yeah, but. And I know you're filling in that gap quicker than I can say. Yeah, but. This didn't happen. Yeah, but. That didn't happen. Why? I can't answer that. All I know is I'm meant to trust in a God who's already made it possible. But I make it probable when I trust Him and believe Him. What, what, what's, all I can tell you is in my life, what prevents a miracle from happening? I don't trust Him. There you go. That's honesty. I sometimes struggle to trust Him. I'm not sure He always has the best in mind for me. And He doesn't always do it the way I want it done. No, God, don't do it that way. So I don't trust Him. I'll fix it myself. So I don't get a miracle. I get a mess. Trust. His power for us who believe. We experience His kingdom coming into situations when we activate that miracle through trust. Through trust. That's when it happens. Situations that are lost become alive. Areas that are bound get free. Places that are dead come alive. It happens. His kingdom comes through us. And there's a power and an authority given to us to win the battles. And that's the context of this scripture here, that it is even more powerful when we do it together. I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing it with you. So here it is. Let's stand. Come on, let's stand. I want us to trust, not just believe God can. I want us to trust right now that God will. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said something that you need to camp on for a second. I struggle with this. So I know you must. I, I don't want to just stand here today and say, yeah, God can do that. I want my simple childlike trust to say, Father, you will do that. Oh gosh, there's so many piercing unbelief looks right now. Like the, like the disciples, oh God, help my unbelief. Become like a little child. Know that he not only can, but he will. Because I believe God wants to, I, I, I just knew it um, well over a week ago that God wants us to shift from just occasionally praying for somebody who's got a backache or a toothache or something to somebody who genuinely needs a miracle, a resurrection miracle. It could be in your marriage, it could be in your finances, it could be in your health, it could be in relationships, but you know you need a miracle. But you also know the only way that will happen is by Him loosing it with resurrection power as we trust Him to do it. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.